4: Monday morning, the 25th of July. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It could be close to a year on from when the Pensions Commission report was published last October before the government signs off on how pensions will be calculated in future and at what age people will qualify For state pension. The minister with responsibility for overseeing this, Heather Humphrey, says the reason for the long delay is uh, that it is a a very long report. It runs to 250 pages. uh, And indeed, she says it's very complicated. The minister also says uh, that the state pension system is not sustainable as it stands going into the future. Uh, And uh, the Commission have their made their recommendations on what to do to change that. But she says reform is necessary uh, and there has to be a plan that will provide for the projected demographic changes, not least, uh, the minister says, in terms of income adequacy for older people. The minister hasn't mentioned that it's also an issue that has proved to be politically toxic. Indeed, many would say it was one of uh, the main issues on the minds of the electorate when they went out to vote for politicians who didn't seem to have It as an issue on their radar in the last general election. Let's speak uh, to Labour's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and East Mead. A very good morning to you, Jed Nash, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We've heard what the Minister is proposing to government over the weekend and that you would be able to retire at 66, uh, which will come as... a a Relief to those who were uh, very concerned about what was initially being proposed, but uh, there's going to be a difference now because uh, you will be able to continue to work. Uh, and if you stay working until you're 70, you'll get a higher pension than somebody who retires at 66.
5: Yeah, we don't have all the details. Um, on the face of it, and um, it seems like a positive thing, people are living uh, that bit longer. Thankfully, people are living healthier lives, but we don't know what kind of contributions. People are going to be expected to make uh, over the next period of time uh, to um, bring people up to that scenario where you can work until you're 70 years of age. Remember, Michael, the Pensions Commission just back in, I think it was October of last year, suggested that the pension age should go up to 67 by 2031 and in three to six month blocks between now and then. So. This is a fairly significant uh, change of plan in terms of what the Pension Commission um, proposed and what government is now proposing. So I think the devil will be in the detail. Uh, the only information that I have is what others are reading in the newspapers. We haven't seen any level of detail whatsoever. The one thing we can be, I think, grateful for is the fact that the pension age now seems to be set at 66. I was very clear myself and the Labour Party were very, very clear that it shouldn't go beyond that. Um, SIP2 uh, especially ran a very significant campaign around the general election of 2020 uh, the Stop 67 campaign that was very successful indeed, uh, persuading um, political parties that the pension shouldn't move uh, beyond 66 but this does need to be funded and we don't know what government is proposing yet in terms of what PRSI increases, especially employer PRSI
4: increases Mm. will be involved here Mm. Uh, But the idea of uh, somebody being on a a higher pension than somebody else uh, must be of concern, is it not?
5: No, it is. And that's an anomalous situation. And What we're concerned about as well, uh, Michael, would be the situation where, for example, somebody who may have left school at 15 or 16 years of age and has full contributions. I mean, how how are they going to be accommodated here? Now, the teacher did say in his remarks, the remarks that he made when he was on a visit to um, Japan uh, late last week, that this shouldn't be burdensome, and he does acknowledge that there are people... May be working in especially physical jobs who will be working a long number of years, mm. and they need to be accommodated too. I haven't seen any mention whatsoever of how they would be accommodated. You could have somebody working, you know, from fifteen, sixteen years of age uh, in you know the wet trades, mm. and um, you know people would be working outdoors, people working very physically demanding jobs. Uh, there's very little reference uh, to, to, to people in situations like that. Uh, at least in the media um, commentary around what it is we're expected to see now well over the next few days.
4: Well, it, it, it would result. Uh, I mean, if, there, if that wasn't taken into account, it could very result well result in somebody working for fifty years and being on a, a lower pension than somebody who's worked for forty or forty-five years.
5: That, that's right, and that's that's why uh, uh, this is kind of an anomalous situation that does need to be um, addressed. We need to be very clear on what's happening for that cohort of worker. And um, the, the reality is that somebody working in those kinds of demanding jobs mm. just simply would not be physically uh, able to do it, and you know it wouldn't be medically advisable. Either. And there could be health and safety uh, issues uh, at, at play here as well. So we don't know what the graduated difference is you going know, to be either between your know, sixty-six or mm. seventy in those different jobs. So there's a lot to be worked out here before we can make a call on this as well. Well, that said,
4: there could be five different rates of pension depending on
5: right.
4: that could be confusing. On, yeah, it could be very confusing uh, indeed. I see, uh, Cliff Taylor writing about it in the Irish Times uh, as well, and he, he seems to uh, be putting a, a ten euro difference on it or, or thereabouts. If you retired at sixty six, you'd be on two hundred and fifty three euro uh, on sixty at sixty seven uh, on two hundred and sixty three, and then it goes up by uh, a tenner like that. So you'd be talking about a significant difference between sixty six and seventy. Uh, if that's right. right. Uh, we're talking about €40, euro, uh, which is, a, 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 when you've no other means of income, it really is a lot of money.
5: That's right, yeah. And and, and that's why I think we do need a conversation as well about um, income adequacy um, mm. as people get older. I mean, we look, we have a situation now where, you know, people, yes, they are living longer, living healthier lives, but, could anybody survive even, you know, on, on a contributory pension at the full rate um, for the rest of their lives as costs go up, as different demands go up? Uh, you know, the full rate of contributory pension at the moment is €253.30. It's uh, much smaller if it's, if it's a non-contributory pension. And um, so, you know, we have to have that conversation as well of adequacy going forward. What kind of pension state pension needs, especially for those who are, entirely dependent on the state pension which is a very significant cohort of pensioners in this country and we still have limited coverage of you know private pension cons- private pension mm. pensions in this country and that's a challenge in, in, in itself so we we need to try and figure out what, what does a decent pension look like into the future especially for somebody who is um, dependent entirely on the state pension it's, it doesn't look to me Two euros dollar fifty. Um, you know, it needs to be set at, 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 a, at, a, at a higher rate if somebody's had, to have some kind of a decent quality of life into into our later years and we need that conversation too and that's a mm-hmm. conversation that we're not having I mean this idea that It's quite
4: generous though uh, in comparison to other countries and you have to take into account the circumstances that people are in uh, their outgoings are, are far less I would imagine the most working people because uh, their mortgage is uh, paid off and they own their own house uh, and they probably have some savings in the bank they might have a, a, a private pension that tops up the state pension uh, and then there are things like the bus pass. Uh, which is worth a, a lot a medical card a, and so on uh, I mean there's an awful lot of pensioners uh, who will tell you they can't believe how well they're looked after by the state uh, and you can't you can't blame the state if uh, people don't make provision in their younger years for when they get older
5: Yeah and pe- people I think are, are increasingly conscious of that it's, people need to be encouraged to be able to do that sort of efficiently but we also as well need to make sure that employers are making benefits um, making provision for, um, you know, pension arrangements for, for their staff as well. We've got the new pension situation coming in over the next couple of years as well, also enrolment, where people will, um, younger workers, uh, all workers, in fact, without uh, any pension provision, will be obliged to sign up to uh, a, a pension scheme. And there's no doubt about it, I mean, you know, the figures and I think, speak volumes. Uh, we have um, fewer problems now with um, re-ingrained poverty pension uh, um, pension pensioner population uh, over the last sort of ten to twenty years, and that's a good thing. It's one of the good things I think we did as a society. We have a range of different supports and payments for for pensioners, and that's really really uh, important. But you know we can't rest on our laurels, and you know people are getting older. We will have that um, concentration of older people um, over the next few years. The demographics are changing, and that's why, of course, these pension reforms are coming coming in. We will have fewer people working. Uh, to provide for, you know, the social insurance that we need to, you know, fund the proper pension system. So this is a sensitive area, something that needs to be planned properly. Uh, they've managed to do it in other mm-hmm. countries. I mean, I, I know that, that, for example, in Denmark, they have a situation where people can, you know, retire later on and have different pension rates, they can defer their retirement date and so on. It's also going to be a big challenge, Michael, about how you actually deal with the contractual situation where somebody might be obliged as per their Um, retirement contracts to retire at a certain point. So, Mm. how does that and this new system kind of marry? There's going to be new legislation required to allow
4: that to happen. Can this be retrospective? Yeah, well, I presume you'd be down in Intrio or whatever and uh, claiming job seekers at 68 or 69 if you were deciding not to retire until you were 70.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is it. This is it. You know, this is one of the issues. So, you know, if if your contract says you must retire at 66 Mm. or 65, for example, as as, as a lot of... uh, contracts place at the moment do mm. you know how does this new situation um, accommodate you now i know that there has been some chatter in the media um, you know about how that would be addressed uh, and that you know uh, that that is something that will have to be addressed uh, i don't have the answer to that we have to see the details mm. but that's going to be a challenge
4: okay and you are going to have resentment from people who think well i wish i could work on I'd love to work till I'm 70, but I'm just not physically able to do it because of the job that I'm doing. And if I look at the fellow next door who is going to continue on until 70, I'd be able to do that job, sitting down, talking to people or whatever it is that he does every day.
5: That's right. That's right. And entirely, that's the point that I made earlier on. I mean, somebody who might be working a very physical job may have left Mm. earlier than somebody who's next door who may have started actually work at 22, 23, 24 years of age, may have had the opportunity to go to college and so on, uh, and is maybe, you know, working a less physically demanding job. All work is demanding, of course, but it's a different kind of job. So that would obviously um, potentially fuel some some resentment, some division in society. Mm. We need to be, you know, government needs to be very conscious of that in terms of how, how we move forward. And mm. also the question as well, there's a lot of uh, older, uh, workers, people who are maybe working, you know, people who, who, who might decide that they do want to work a little longer, but not full time. How, yeah. how does the, mm. the new situation accommodate that? And, and it's a good thing, actually, if people do want, want to work and are able to work, that they want to continue to make that mm. contribution. For example, I mean, if you're not working full time, you're working part time, the employer might want you to work part-time as well, maybe to mentor mm. uh, younger colleagues who are coming through the system and so on. How does that system yeah. then accommodate that?
4: Mm. And, and as you said, uh, if you leave school at, at 15, after 50 years of work, you might feel you, you've paid your dues and you should be entitled you your dues,
5: to... You should be entitled to your pension. Yeah, can you yep. retire earlier? Uh, and, and it may not be called a pension. It could be called something else. Uh, but giving you the equivalent of what would be a full contributory pension, that's something I think that Mm. would need to be considered to reflect that reality and it is a reality.
4: Okay, I mentioned earlier on that Uh, I suppose most pensioners will have paid off uh, their mortgage. Uh, Paying off a mortgage has uh, become more complicated, particularly those uh, who have uh, not fixed at this stage. I think a lot of people have fixed their mortgage at this stage, anticipating uh, the increase in interest rates. Uh, But people are are being asked for a a lot more now on a monthly basis. And this is really just the start of something that's going to get worse over a long period of time, it would seem
5: yeah, well, the european central bank have, have raised rates for the first time now since the um, early twenty ten and this is going to have an impact on businesses, but it's also going to have an impact as well uh, on uh, mortgage holders, especially those who are on variable uh, mortgage rates, and there are about quarter of a million um householders in Ireland who are on those more variable mortgage interest rates. If you're on a tracker ratio there's about two hundred and fifty thousand of those is maybe three hundred thousand your 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 mortgage is going to go up. Um, over the next period of time, now there are um, all of the banks at this point. The Irish banks have not said um, that they are going to uh, um, add on the 0.5% increase announced last week by the European Central Bank. But the banks are keeping this under review, and that's why I introduced the piece of legislation almost a a few weeks ago to, um, uh, to 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 ensure that whether it's what we call a market failure, uh, we have the second highest. Uh, mortgage interest rates uh, in Europe after Greece uh, and in our view that is, uh, it, uh, that is a form of market failure because we've now only three banks in the system. When Ulster Bank and, and, and KBC leave, we have 12 banks Michael in 2007 and three banks now, there's a, a failure of competition here and, and a failure to uh, properly represent the interests of consumers that's one of the reasons why we've got high interest rates anyway. I mean if you, if, if this is added on, if the half percent was added on by the banks uh, this week it would mean next week if you're in a you know, first-time hiring mm. on a 70,000 euro mortgage are probably going to be paying about 110 to 120 euro extra uh, per month in terms of mortgage repayments. So we believe that it is time now that government looked at our legislation to cap uh, variable mortgage interest rates where there is what we describe as market failure, and we believe there is market failure. A similar bill was brought into the Dole in 2016 by the now Minister Michael McGrath, and he believed that um, you know. The, We were long past time persuading the banks to try to do something Mm. in relation to mortgage rates and that the legislative response was required. That was in a period of low interest rates. We're entering a period now of higher interest rates. It would probably go up the ECB rate by 2%. By the end of 2023, that could potentially be catastrophic for uh, variable mortgage interest rate holders in Ireland if the banks um, pass on... Uh, that interest rate rise. They may not pass on the half percent, but certainly when things get a little bit stickier, Mm. uh, I think it's inevitable that they will. okay.
4: Well, as uh, you say, we've had a a very strange relationship with uh, the bank since 2008 and uh, the financial collapse uh, and uh, we've seen many of uh, them leave uh, the market uh, but some of them wouldn't be there today if it wasn't for the taxpayer and AIB, uh, an obvious case in hand. They've reversed their decision now uh, not to go cashless in 70 branches. What do you think is the next step that AIB will take? Will they start closing them one by one? Because I'm sure there's no doubt that that is eventually what is going to happen, that all 70 of those branches uh, and more possibly will be cashless if that's what their intention is.
5: Yeah, we we haven't heard the the last of this, (coughs) Michael. There's no doubt about that. And uh, this idea that government, as one Minister said, we're blindsided by this, just doesn't hold water. I mean, I've put in parliamentary questions on a Freedom of Information request to try and obtain all of the information I can in terms of what the Department of Finance knew, uh, which ministers knew and when, about this really significant decision that was made early last week and the U-turn that was performed. Uh, at the back end of, of last week, I mean, it's quite extraordinary now. We have seen a fall in the backbenchers um, vying to take credit uh, for uh, this uh, you know, reversal uh, from, from uh, AIB. This is the first time I've heard many of them actually talk about the banks at all. And one of the key issues here, I think, is what's known as the relationship um, framework signed off by Fianna Fáil and the Green Party with um, Allied Irish Bank uh, back in uh, 2008 when that government bailed out this bank, I mean, to the tune of €21 billion from the Irish taxpayer. Um, That relationship framework dictates actually how decisions like these are taken, and that would insist that on a decision like this, government are informed, um, and in my view, government shouldn't be a case that they're informed. They should be consulted. They should be involved because the state still has 63% of a shareholder. That's a majority Mm. shareholder. And the Minister of Finance is a passive. Share.
4: But they're going to go cashless anyway. I, I mean, the, the heat was too much, uh, and uh, they've managed uh, to calm the storm. Uh, but they're going. To, they're, they're obviously intent on doing this. This is part of their business model, and they will do it. Uh, we might not notice uh, that it's being done as they close branch after branch uh, uh, on a weekly basis. Let's say over seventy weeks, rather than this bigger announcement and the big backlash that came with it.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and we all know, of course, that you know people are great to digital transactions through our apps and so on, but that doesn't work for everybody. And there's a bigger issue here as well, and that's the social value of banks in our community, mm. not just about the bottom line.
4: No, but you made the point situation. that they can do whatever they want; they don't need to consult with the government. Uh, and well, that could be changed. Well, that's that's the, that's the I question, mean, question I was going to put and, you. And
5: this is the point. I mean, the relation framework, and we've been repeatedly calling on the minister for finance in the Isle and elsewhere to actually review that, because he's at the moment he's simply a passive shareholder, a silent partner. Uh, we, we've paid for AIB, but we don't seem to be able to in any way influence what it is. Uh, they they are doing. I mean, our view, and we we said this in our submission to the Retail Banking Review that closed just a couple of weeks ago, is that, you know, we need to figure out precisely what our banks are for. uh, And we need to figure out precisely what AIB, a majority state-owned bank, is for. In our view, we shouldn't actually be selling off 5% here and 2% there. What we should be doing is Continuing to have it actually in public hands, provided that we figure out what it is we're going to do with it. And in our view, what AIB should be for is for investing in jobs and businesses in this country. And uh, that hasn't been the case, it hasn't performed especially well in that regard. They seem to be more interested in buying stockbroking firms to actually manage high net wealth customers rather than, you know, you know, well, what they it's their business, isn't it? You know? uh, well, that's what they say, but mm. it's also our business because we invested in it, uh, we have a significant share in it, uh, and we need to figure out. Uh, uh, you what know, but the, but the public good and social good mm-hmm. perspective for AIB is unfortunately the Minister has just uh, sat back washed his hands of this uh, and I think he's been caught now um, you know uh, and the Department of Finance have been caught um, and uh, it's simply not good enough and I, I prefer to be hearing from Fin the and backbenchers uh, about what the purpose of AIB is and how they believe AIB okay. could be the best place to invest in jobs and businesses in this country uh, because I think inevitably we're going to be back here having this very
4: mm-hmm. same conversation mm-hmm. yeah. with
5: if this kind of attitude from the government
4: persists. Okay, well if uh, the intent uh, continues uh, and I, I have a feeling, I could be wrong of course, but if, uh, a feeling AIB obviously feel it's prudent to uh, have those branches without cash uh, and right. if that's what they feel is prudent, uh, I've little doubt uh, that they'll do something uh, different altogether, or that they, you know, that they uh, I have no doubt that they wouldn't do uh, something different altogether. Jed, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Jed is Labour finance spokesperson and a TD for Louth and Eastmead.
6: Michael Michael
4: Reed on LMFM Well as I'm sure you know uh, Lisa Smith uh, was uh, sentenced on Friday morning to 15 months in prison in uh, the special criminal court. Uh, This is uh, for membership of an Islamic terrorist offence which was committed uh, abroad. Uh, She's the first person in this country to have been convicted of membership of a terrorist organisation. The judge in the case Tony Hunt set the headline sentence at two and a half years uh, but brought that down to the 15 months when he took on board mitigating factors let's speak to our courts reporter Frank Graney who was among the journalists that filled three rows as I understand it in the special criminal court on Friday obviously Frank there was a, a lot of interest in this a very unique case if ever there was
1: Yes, a complex and novel case was exactly how the presiding judge, Mr Justice, Tony Hunt, described it. And I think that's a fair summation, um, especially throwing back to the comment that you made at the start of the piece, that this was the first time that a case like this had been prosecuted in Ireland, where a crime of this nature was committed on on foreign soil and pursued uh, in Ireland and, and ended up before the special criminal court. And there was a huge media interest in the trial, Throughout, and obviously then on Friday at at the sentencing, I counted about 14 or 15 journalists in the room. As you can imagine, there was a lot of uh, interest domestically. Uh, all news agencies were represented in court, and there was an international interest as well. You know, you had representatives from the BBC, were there, Sky News, and and Press Association. The hearing itself didn't last very long, but it did result in Lisa Smith being taken into custody uh, to begin that 15-month sentence, as you said.
4: Mm, She uh, faced a a possible conviction uh, or sentence of eight years.
1: That's right and um, as Mr Justice Tony Hunt was beginning to outline the reasoning behind the sentence that was eventually handed down on Friday he did say that there was an eight year maximum punishment available to the court but that taking everything apart from mitigation into account so just looking at the offence and I suppose the guiding principle of of any sentence when a judge or judges as was the case here sit down to decide in an appropriate sentence they have to look at two things they have to look at the offence And they also have to look at the person who committed that offence, the offender. So without looking at Lisa Smith, by just looking at the offence that she was convicted of, they settled on a headline sentence, as you mentioned, of about two and a half years. The next step then would be to look at the mitigation in the case. And there was an awful lot of it. You know, her barrister, Michael O'Higgins, at her sentence hearing earlier this month, spent hours on his feet arguing for... Um, I suppose a lenient sentence for his client. Mm. he he went as far to suggest and to plead with the court not to send her to prison and he raised a number of things in mitigation you know there were several psychological reports presented to the court and all of the experts uh, described her as a very vulnerable person, a damaged person. Um, there was some evidence induced in relation to her, her childhood, her, her personal circumstances growing up in, in Dundalk, and that was described as very raw and very personal, and it had a devastating impact on her uh, development. Now, that wasn't, that, they didn't go into that in any great detail, but that certainly was something that was available to the judges to consider uh, in private. Mm. Um, he also touched on her time in the army, and I suppose the huge contribution that she has made to Irish society through her 10 years in the Irish Defence Forces, that was something that the judges took into account. The fact that she has a five-year-old daughter as well, that would have been a huge mitigating factor uh, in, in this case. You know, um, the father of this child died in Syria, um, her husband, he died uh, while in Syria, um, so she is essentially her primary carer so obviously that would have a devastating impact if she was taken to custody, so Mr. Higgins did spend hours fighting the case for her not to be Sent to prison, And he also mentioned the fact that she had spent two years in appalling conditions in Syrian prison camps after she had been captured over there while ISIS was in retreat. She also spent a couple of weeks in a Turkish prison before she was repatriated to Ireland in late 2019. And after he brought back to Ireland, she was arrested on the tarmac at Dublin Airport and she spent another four weeks in custody there. So Mr O'Higgins was saying, look, if there is going to be a custodial element to this case, then perhaps he could take all of that into account. Mm. Uh, but in the end... I suppose the judges felt that just given the seriousness of what she did, um, she had to go to prison for it. But there was a significant discount, even given the fact that she had contested the case, which was obviously her right, that would have given her the yep. biggest discount when it comes to sentencing. And the fact that she didn't show any remorse, so she mm. doesn't still accept the verdict of the court. So that would have worked against her. But despite all that, she got a 50% discount on that headline sentence. So a two and a half year sentence that they had initially landed on was essentially halved and she was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Mm. And
4: a lot of weight was put on the fact that she hasn't shown remorse. Uh, I I think uh, the judge said that this sister of Islamic State went into the enterprise with eyes wide open uh, and has never shown remorse for her actions. Uh, And I I take it that despite all of the uh, factors uh, that were listed as part of her her good character, that that was offset to some degree uh, and that uh, if she had uh, apologised or... uh, said something to make people feel that she was sorry for what she had done, uh, that um, p- perhaps the outcome would have been different?
1: Well, I think certainly what would have happened if she had shown some remorse um And again, I'm speculating here, Mm, but I do think what would have happened is there might have been a suspended element to her sentence. Because if a person in any... I'm speaking generally here, but if a person in any circumstance is convicted of a crime and punished for it, if they do show some remorse, then they're given a chance to rehabilitate. But clearly, if a person isn't showing remorse, there isn't that option open to a judge. There was no... None of her sentence that was handed down on Friday. There was no suspended element to it. If she had shown some remorse and the judges were mindful to still send her to prison not only to punish her because that's mm. only one aspect when it comes to sentencing but also to deter others who might be thinking of you know, travelling to a foreign land to involve themselves with a dangerous group like ISIS you know, these are very dangerous terrorist organisations and there has to be a message sent out from the Irish courts that you will be punished in your homeland if you do that the, you know, there is legislation there that the courts and the Gardaí have at their disposal to punish people who do that so there was a deterrence element to it if she had shown some remorse and they still reminded to sentence to prison well there may be there may have been a suspended element to to the sentence but that wasn't the case and you've made a very good point there you know lisa smith's argument throughout the entire trial was that the reason she traveled to syria in 2015 was because in, in her mind you know she had converted to Islam before she left the Irish Army in in 2011. And she felt she was answering a religious call. Mm. She wanted to live in an Islamic state under Sharia law. She wanted to bring up a family under Sharia law where there would be no homosexuality, no alcohol drank in society. And, you know, she wants to live under that very strict regime. So she claimed that, you know, there was an innocent reason uh, behind her decision to travel to Syria. But the court clearly didn't accept that in convicting her of ISIS membership. You know, the prosecution case was that she had traveled there with her eyes wide open and that by traveling there, knowing what she knew and knowing what was in store for her over there and knowing what ISIS was about, the prosecution had claimed that she had essentially enveloped herself in the black flag of ISIS. And the courts did agree. Now, there was some suspicion about what she got up to uh, over in Syria, particularly, I suppose, giving her military background. Mm. You know, we heard evidence from FBI agents who would have interviewed her while she was being detained in those appalling uh, prison camps in Syria. But the reality is that there was no hard evidence to suggest that she did anything more than she had told Gardaí in her extensive interviews after she had been repatriated to Ireland. So the judges did accept that there was you know, an eyebrow raised. There was an element of suspicion about her activities while she was on in Syria. You know, the court has to rely and make decisions on hard evidence and there wasn't any evidence to suggest that she used her military expertise while she was over in syria to train isis fighters or otherwise it simply wasn't uh, the case for the court to consider um, but still mm. it still felt that the fact that she had went over that she involved herself with isis in any shape or form it still felt that deserved a custodial sentence and you know, that's where they landed on a, on a 15-month prison sentence for her, which she began on Friday.
4: OK, I understand psychologists will assess her in prison to see if she poses any further risk. Gardaí seemed to be saying uh, that when she is released, she'll be on uh, guard and watch for uh, some time afterwards. Uh, as things stand, uh, she's in uh, the Doka Centre in Mount Joy. Uh, she may appeal the sentence, uh, but is uh, beginning this 15-month sentence and will be out, what would you say, Frank, possibly in a year or so.
1: Yes, uh, Lisa Smith will, like any other um, convicted person, be entitled to a 25% remission uh, on that sentence if she behaves herself while in prison. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that she will. She, you know, is of previous good character. There, were, there was never an issue with Lisa Smith while she was being held um, in custody mm-hmm before she eventually got her bail after being repatriated to Ireland. So if she keeps her nose clean while she's in the DOCA centre, then she's likely to avail of that 25% remission, and that would mean that she would spend, you know, a little over 11 months in in prison. Lisa Smith, I don't think, Michael Lisa Smith, was expecting to go to prison on Friday. If she was, I don't think that she was expecting to be sent to prison for 15 months. She had no belongings with her when she came to court, which suggests that, you know, she wasn't expecting a sentence to be handed down, and she was very, very upset, visible upset when the sentence was eventually handed down. Now, I think it's also fair to say that, you know, the conditions in the Doka Centre would be a hell of a lot better than the conditions that she would have experienced in other prison camps in Syria. Um, But that said, I think the big difference, and perhaps the reason she was so upset when the sentence was handed down was because for the first time she would be separated from her daughter. So for the next year or so, you know, she will not... Um, have her daughter by her side and I think that's why the tears were were really flowing when the sentence was eventually handed down on Friday afternoon.
4: Okay, Frank, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Our courts reporter Frank Graney.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on
4: LMFM. LMFM. Yeah, there has, of course, been huge interest in uh, Lisa Smith's uh, story. Let's speak uh, to Carl Duffy now, uh, because probably true to say that nobody has been more interested in Lisa Smith's story than yourself, uh, Carl. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program. Uh, you grew up with Lisa Smith, in and are having a more and you've uh, a, a long-standing relationship with her. Well, yeah,
1: because
7: when um, when she converted to Islam. She came to our mosque and the first person she met was me. And then we talked through the whole, you know, the whole religion and stuff like that. And then when she just when she converted, she moved in with me and lived with me for a while.
4: OK, uh, what do you make of uh, the sentence on Friday?
7: Um, Shocked and re- shocked and relieved, to be honest with you. I was shocked that she got anything at all. And um, I was relieved that, you know, the, 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 the judge handed her the sentence he did. Um, because, to be honest, there's so much going on now in regards to ISIS and the online presence that they have, and how they're reaching out to you know younger people and especially Western women. Um, so I was delighted. I mean, if it acts as a deterrent if against you know people considering going into this kind of you know political uh, political Islam, I think it's a great thing. I think okay. it's a really good thing. But I am very surprised.
4: Mm. OK. Uh, Lisa Smith's actions uh, uh, and uh, indeed your relationship with Lisa Smith, uh, I think, led to you being investigated yourself by Gardy.
7: Yeah, yeah. Lisa had mentioned me in the same vein as uh, Georgie Alice and his wife, which were the two recruiters that she was talking to online. And because of that, then I was investigated and I only got cleared just as the court case had started. So the electronics were taken. I was interviewed multiple times. They went down and spoke to the people that I teach in the mosque. My imam and it went on for months. It went on for it went on for nearly the same amount of time. She came home, when she arrived home. It had started, and um, it had picked up pace then. And I mean, the guards did what they had to do. They had to check everything, but because I was so closely linked to her, it was it was a it was a horrible horrible thing when she mentioned my name, okay. um, and it was an awful time. Okay, but, yeah,
4: uh, uh, and you were mistaken uh, by people on the street uh, in Dundalk as being Lisa Smith.
7: Yeah, people at the at the initially at the start, people had assumed it, uh, I was her, and it, yeah, it was just the abuse. You know, the place that we had lived before, people were chucking things at the front door. It was online abuse, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Until things kind of started calming down, and people knew then that she was in custody, and you know, things started calming down then. But initially, then when the court case got going, then and when people had realised that, right, okay, I was going to be a witness, but obviously I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had a background that she said I had. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, gossip, you know, it can stick sometimes.
4: Yeah, and uh, it's easy, I suppose, for people to be suspicious of anybody in a hijab as well.
5: Mm-hmm. True, true. Yeah. Uh, but,
4: uh, um, uh, and do you, wel- do, do, do you welcome the sentence for that reason?
7: Um, no, do you know what? It wouldn't be anything to do with that at all. I just welcome it because, to be honest with you, there's, there's so many groups out there now that are luring people in, gullible people who think that they're going to be part of something. And, you know, they think that they, because of an Irish passport, like, you know, she went over there, she did what she did, and then all of a sudden, well, I have a passport, I want to come home, and then expecting nothing to happen when she came home. Just, just you know, pledging allegiance to those people is enough, because that's what they look for. They want a body count, they want numbers. You know, so I was um, I was surprised that even though she didn't do that and the fact she went over, I thought that that was going to be, OK, well, they'll probably give her you know a suspended sentence and all that but so i was very very happy because it is going to be a deterrent it's showing that ireland is you know right it happened outside of ireland but you're irish and you have to be held accountable so i thought it was very very good okay i just feel sorry obviously for her family and for her daughter i do feel sorry for them because it has been a terrible time for them but it had to be done yeah
4: really really a, a, a terrible time i'm sure for uh the family uh, yeah D- did you know that uh, Lisa Smith was going to go to Syria?
7: Um, I knew that she had gone over before.
8: Right, She had been
7: there before and only stayed, and she went on a holiday and then came back again. Mm. And um, so everyone was kind of talking about it, and I invited her to my home. It would have been in 2012 to have a chat with her. Someone had asked me to have a chat with her, and, um, because there was talk. Yeah, And um, she basically just... It blew up in my face, and then that was the last time we spoke.
4: Uh, and do you believe that, it none of my business. F- f- from your discussions with her, do you believe that she went for relig- religious reasons?
7: Not at all. Not at all. The things that she was talking about, about being part of the religion, that's not part of the religion at all. To make hijrah is to go to a country where you can practice your religion freely. Nowhere is better than Ireland to practice your religion freely. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. me as an Irish person and other loads of other Irish Muslims, We can practice our religion here very freely. We don't get any hassle. Do you know what I mean? So that was a load of rubbish. That's just an excuse that people made, um, this thing of going to... Because if you want to go to a Muslim country or where there's plenty of Muslims, there's other places to go than a country that's after being invaded and people you know, being raped, murdered and tortured. There's a better place, you know what I mean? There's Mm. other, there's Mm. other places you could go. You didn't have to go there and become part of that and become complacent with that, Yeah. you know? Yeah,
3: well,
4: that makes sense, I think, Carol. Listen, I have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us this morning. No
6: problem at all, thank you. Thank
4: you. Carol Duffy, a former acquaintance of Lisa Smith.
6: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. Thanks to Jim Andrade who was on the phone to us this morning. Jim says he welcomes uh, this proposal about uh, the pension and uh, being able to choose if uh, you work on or not. He says think he thinks people should not be forced to work after the age of 66 but if you do want to keep working then it's a good thing that you will have that choice uh, and thanks as I say Jim uh, for your call to the programme. Paddy Duffy says uh, what about uh, 14 your rent after you retire it's a, a new phenomenon in this country alright uh, Paddy uh, that people are, are still renting uh, into uh, their pension years, their twilight years uh, and how are you going to go from your wages every week to a reduced income on a pension and afford the exorbitant rent Paddy wants to no, Pat and that boy was in touch with us saying uh, he travelled uh, around uh, the county uh, and recently he's really disappointed to see the state of the streets in front of some of the local shops with rubbish, straw uh, and other things that are littering the footpaths. Disgraceful altogether, he says. Pat says there's no excuse for streets to look like that uh, for the want of a rub of a brush, as he put it. It creates a very bad impression for people travelling through the town. Thanks uh, indeed uh, if you've been in touch. If not, if something that uh, you'd like to discuss with us, we'd like to hear from you. Now let's uh, discuss the leadership of Fianna Fall with two local councillors, Stephen McKee on Meath County Council and John Sheridan on Louth County Council. And good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us. We're told that there is this, in uh, part, uh, in-house debate uh, within the parliamentary party as to whether Micheál Martin should step back when he hands over the baton to Leo Radger, who's said uh, to become the Taoiseach again in December uh, and Stephen McKee first of all you'd agree with that?
0: I would yeah well first of all good morning Michael uh, good morning uh, John and all your listeners yeah I think um, we, we've um, the programme of government um, at the moment um I, I would seek that it be um, looked at again in six months' time, particularly when Michal Martin and, and um, Leo Fratica rotate their positions. I think that'll be a timely time, really, for um, the party to look to the future. I think um, that, you know, Michal has been leader of Fianna now since 2010. Um, there is a sense within the party that we're lacking direction, we're lacking a sense of identity, um, that you know, we're effectively lost in government. And, and, and I think... Um, you know, we're, we are being impacted negatively by being in the three-party coalition um, and I think a process should begin to replace Mihal Martin as leader in the coming months. I think it should be done in a very constructive, respectable way. Uh, I would be interested in seeing, you know, and hearing from prospective candidates going forward. There should be, in, in my view, some sort of hostings, uh, that to allow candidates to put forward their ideas and their vision for the party, uh, as I said, in a constructive, respectable way and that would be done over the next six months.
4: Okay, do you think Michael Martin has been a, a good leader?
0: I think Michal Martin came in at a time when when Fianna Fáil were very low um, um, and I think he's done a very good job over the last number of years, but there's a cycle in politics, there's a natural cycle and I think that cycle is coming to an end I think he's represented Ireland uh, very effectively over the last number of years his dealings on the Brexit issue, his uh, handling of the pandemic, he's an excellent parliamentarian, he's represented us excellently on the international stage as well, Uh, but I think there's a time for change now within Fianna Fáil, I think the party needs to to offer and why explain uh, oh, a new why, vision
4: if he's so good why do you think there's a time for change uh, is it that
0: somebody could be better well i think there's a natural cycle in, in all these things i think michael's uh, cycle has is coming to an end uh and as i said we we we've been doing okay. very poorly in, in in polls over the last over over the last number of years now we've we've and and, and i think the predictive last few years okay um, so he's not performing with, with, with well, I think it's, it's a wider issue, really, the party at national level, um, not getting, having a clear message. I think, as I said, we've been impacted negatively by being in the three-party mm. coalition. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not an issue, uh, per se, with Mihal Martin. I think it's a wider issue within the party, but I do think there needs, as part of that change and renewal of the party, there needs to be a change in leader over the next um, six months.
4: OK, John Sheridan, you don't agree, do you?
0: Yeah, look,
3: Michael, good morning, good morning, Stephen, as well. I've spoken to party members over the weekend and over the last few months, and there's lots of different opinions in the party, as Stephen has said. It's very healthy to have that. Um, one thing that unites us, and even unites myself and Stephen on this, is the record of Michael Martin as T-shirt though, his honest, hard-working focus on the, on the issues that matter. So uh, my own view is, is that when the rotation happens with the, the Finnegade leader, whoever the Finnegade leader is in December, uh, if that does change, that that rotation would happen and Mihal Martin would stay on for a period as thornish to, to have a stable transition i think that's very very valuable this the new concept in Irish politics that there would be a rotation like this mm. uh, and I think Miel Martin does have something to offer um, that said I probably do agree that uh, he shouldn't lead us into the next election but Miel Martin I trust his judgement on it I trust his word on that and I think he will know when the time is right uh, to hand over the other thing says I don't think there's any uh, clear candidates as of yet I know Stephen has said about um, there should be hustings, but I don't uh, see any clear candidates I think there's good ministers there but I think they need to keep working in those departments and they need to show more results uh, on the issue that matter in health, housing and education.
4: OK. Uh, when Leo Radcliffe takes over, if, as you say, he is uh, the leader of Finnegal as Taoiseach in December, will there be any difference? Will anybody notice anything different about the way the, uh, the country has been run?
3: Well, I'd hope that from the Fianna Fáil point of view, that the Fianna Fáil ministers continue delivering in in their departments, and I think um, the biggest thing that Fianna Fáil need to do and show um, is that we're willing to adapt to the issues that face us, whether it's cost of living issues, mm. uh, housing, um, the, the climate issues facing us, and that um, Fianna Fáil are putting our stamp on the on the programme for government, putting well, what our is stamp that? on those departments.
4: Well, what is that? I, I think you preempted my next question. What is the Fianna, mm. Fianna Fáil? What's the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael?
3: Oh, well, certainly, if, uh, Michael, I remember you, you had me on uh, I think it was last September at the yeah. time of thinking uh, asking what Fianna Fáil meant to me and it was uh, that we were a Republican party uh, that did our best for ordinary working families um, and uh, and supporting them in whatever way uh, possible so for okay. me that's what Fianna what, what want to do. But I, will now, say, I Michael, think if you
4: had a member um, of Fine Gael on they'd say the same thing if you had a member of any political party on they'd say the no, same thing but,
3: really. But, yeah. but I will say I, I do think there's, there, there's a, a clear strategy uh, by, by, by two parties at the moment to be very divisive in politics politics to throw attacks at each other. Uh, that does clearly help their own polls, but I don't think it helps uh, public or politics. And uh, I think that's where Fianna fall of a place mm-hmm. to say that, um, you know, we can do far more uh, by not being divisive in politics and actually w- working hard on the issues.
4: Okay. Is there one thing even that you could tell me that it, it, it differentiates the two parties?
3: Well, I've actually—I'll even point to housing, Michael, and look at the the, the different schemes, uh, the the the, uh, the new schemes, even the last couple of weeks that Minister Daryl Brian uh, Brian has announced the Cricone scheme, the shared equity scheme. And um, under Finnegall's term, the Department of Housing seemed to be passed around like past the parcel. Um, Fianna Fáil are very committed to that department, and it's something that Fianna Fáil, over the decades was always very proud of our record uh, in building uh, building housing for people, and that's something we want to do in this term of government. And um, look, at, you know, the, the, there's a long way to go. In, in relation to housing uh, but we can see all across loud new developments new estates both social affordable and private uh, currently under construction
4: yeah, I'm not sure that people will buy that I'm not sure that you'd win over uh, voters uh, on housing because it's never been worse uh, and uh, it's something that was, uh, became a problem when Fianna Fáil started, stopped building houses in the 80s Stephen uh, do you see any difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael at this stage?
0: Well, I think part of the problem is that we, we've we've sort of been lost in the three-party coalition. I would agree with John. There's there's certain um, issues that we've always been traditionally strong in, in terms of housing, education, and I would like to see us focus more on, on, on serving people. I think part of the problem at the moment is that we seem to be punishing people a lot of the time. I mean, we look at the climate change issues, and of course we need to meet targets, and we need to do all we can for the environment. But I mean we have a situation there where for farming then you know the Greens are looking for up to 30% cuts carbon emission cuts which would put serious serious pressure on farmers who are already struggling so at the time of the energy prices are soaring across Europe we need to be supporting Irish people you know we, 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 the inflation looks like it's going to be reaching 10% soon and, and, and instead of you know, instead of okay. focusing on on the elimination of low cost fuel turf, you know, and, and and banning second cars from people and all this sort of nonsense, I think we need to we need to be seen to serve people more, not punish them. So um, Charlie
4: McConlogue needs to face Eamon Ryan down. Um, Absolutely, but very where's the Fianna fall voice on, on, on this? I mean, we're hearing from well, Fine Gael backbenchers this morning.
0: Well, well, I'm on the right on here this morning this mm-hmm. morning article, in my view, and an article in the view of many Fianna Fáil people, I've been very concerned about the what I would see the neglect of, of rural Ireland in that regard, and and, and the overarching uh, green agenda that's really putting huge strain on families right across this country. And I would hope that Charlie McConnell Logan, and and Fianna Fáil will continue to defend farmers on this. I think we need to be looking at technology. Uh, it's already a factor in transport and the energy sectors. We see electric cars, electric buses. We should be investing both and offshore wind energy. And technology also has a part to play in transforming agriculture. It will take time, but that's what we need to be focused on. I think the idea that we can just be punitive to our farmers is not the way to go. Um, I think we need to support farmers. We need to support agriculture in this country. Uh, And I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a more realistic debate and a more balance on on the climate change debate in this country.
4: Okay. Uh, John, um, the two ministers seem to be... um, trying to thrash this out without much success Uh, there seems to be a a huge uh, divide between the two Uh, it could uh, prove uh, to be too great a a challenge uh, to stay in government with the Green Party could it?
3: Potentially, uh, but um, I respect Charlie McGowan-Logan. I think, to be fair, Michael, uh, if he's focused on those negotiations over, over the coming days, uh, I think every sector, including agriculture, have very, very tough decisions. We all as a society have very, very um, tough choices in relation to, to, to climate. But in some ways, like Stephen said, you know, when we speak to local farmers, I've spoken to local farmers in, in Louth, they want to be part of the solution on climate change, not just be you know, painted as, as part of the problem. And there's so many practical things um, at a recent Louth IFA meeting in terms of talking about solar panels mm. and sheds using rainwater um, in, uh, on, 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 on farms and other things in relation to... Very the good. But, but, and farms but, and grass. So but continue there's there's to
4: there's say 22% and not 30%
3: no and, and, and I see lots of comment in, the, in, in in the papers online on that this morning um i I, I think we'll be able to find a, a solution on this um, and at the end of the day, I think we owe it to, to the Irish people to try and find a solution on it because mm. uh, to be fair, the climate crisis is there, and uh, we, we need to we need to deal with that as well and and, and have every every sector engage on it and and uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure we will get a decision on it.
4: yeah well, if we weren't convinced uh, by the heat waves or, or over the last uh, couple of months, maybe the flooding in the middle of July over the weekend. Gone uh, will uh, make people think about how climate change is here and now. But anyway, uh, that's just part of... uh The things uh, that uh, your party leader and uh, indeed uh, your party are dealing with in government, what happens in December, remains to be seen. uh, But there is this conversation underway and thank you both for joining us uh, to talk about it on the programme uh, today. Local Fianna Fáil councillors in Mead, we spoke to Stephen McKee and in Louth we heard from John Sheridan.
6: Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM Well,
4: animal lovers, uh, indeed I think anybody with any ounce of humanity in uh, their bones would have been very disturbed reading uh, The Sunday World yesterday Let's uh, speak to Alison O'Reilly journalist who's been investigating whistleblower claims in Dublin Zoo for the last year. Uh, A very good morning to you Alison and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today You were reporting yesterday uh, on uh, a chimpanzee Uh, who had uh, his uh, finger bitten off by another chimpanzee.
8: That's right, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, I've been looking into Dublin Zoo since last year. Uh, A lot of claims were brought to me by five different zookeepers, uh, past and present, Um, And they're very distressed because obviously they love the animals, uh, but they're concerned about how the uh, zoo is being run. And yesterday's story in the Sunday World involved Bosu, a chimpanzee who was attacked by another chimp called Marlon. Now, the pictures that you saw were taken last year. Unfortunately, Bosu, who was born in the zoo in uh, 2003, has actually no fingers now at all. And... um, He's lost five fingers and on one toe having been attacked by Marlon and uh, the whistleblower is claiming that um, despite concerns being raised about leaving the chimpanzees together given that they were attacking each other mm. um, and that Marlon was uh, you know or that, that Bosu was at a severe disadvantage and I saw him myself I went to see him when we were photographing him and he was severely bet down very vulnerable in the pack and he has since been moved to the old um, gorilla enclosure in the zoo but the, the main claim was that it just took too long to move him when he was at such a disadvantage in the pack.
4: Okay, Uh, and there was a a bone protruding for a week, was it?
8: Yeah, so he went through four operations and at one point there was a bone sticking out for a week before an operation took place um, and that this chimpanzee had suffered and suffered openly. And despite uh, pleas by zookeepers to do something and to separate them and to operate, that uh, there was a huge delay with this, and he was only recently separated. That's one of the claims mm. in 15 subheadings in a in a protected disclosure made by a Whistleblower recently.
4: Okay, 15 subheadings. Do you mean uh, concerns uh, about animal animal yeah, welfare so in the case of 15 yeah, animals? Yeah, yeah. there's
8: mm. No, no. It's 15 um, headings that involve, I'd say, more than 20 animals, mm. um, and that includes bullying and harassment in the in the workplace, so staff issues as well. Claims of severe animal abuse, um, very shocking images that I've seen, shocking video footage. Uh, Harry the gorilla, the silverback that we all remember. Um, I've seen the photograph of uh, Harry dying. I've seen the zims reports, which are the daily logged reports by the zookeepers in there that write down all the kind of history of the animal and the day-to-day care. Um, and according to Yvonne McCann, who's waived her right anonymity and who was the caregiver of Harry in the weeks that he was dying and he was ill, she had logged complaints two months before he died of ear cupping, diarrhoea, off form. And we know that Harry had a massive stroke on the 29th of May 2016. But <clears throat> as we know with strokes, it's normally a warning. So it's no different with, you know, humans. There's normally a warning, and Yvonne had raised concerns two months prior to his death. And she said, even though he was 29 when he died, Silverback can live up to, to 40. Right. Um, and yeah. she's absolutely heartbroken over that. So there's a lot yeah. of uh, uh, shocking images, mind Okay, but he
4: had a, a lot of um, health problems, I suppose. Uh, I think uh, uh, Yvonne's point was that he, he should have been put down.
8: Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, yeah. so. She raised concerns at the run up to him dying, but uh, left then to just naturally rather than being humanely euthanized that, mm-hmm. that she was told nothing could be done we're still waiting to get specifics from the zoo who vehemently de- de- deny all of these allegations mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. not actually it's a blanket denial michael i think we need specifics here because right. the calls i'm getting and the call everyone is getting we all loved harry we all knew harry how did he die we want to know the details and they're not coming out
4: right uh, and then there's uh, nico the sea lion
8: yeah, Nico the sea lion. Uh, they decided in 2020, according to the whistleblower at the zoo, to stop breeding. And uh, uh, despite the um, uh, pleas by the, the whistleblower, who says in his statement that uh, he had asked not for, for Nico not to be put away from the fema- female sea lions because the holding pen for this male-breathing sea lion, a big Californian sea lion, he's, he's in the Sunday world, absolutely gorgeous animal, that mm. um, he had visual access to the, the females um, and that he was put into a small pen. Now, he actually was put in on the 29th of May and despite pleas from the zookeeper who went away for his weekend and came back, um, Nico was dead. And he is claiming that Nico was left without access to water. Uh, in a breeding season, visual access to female sea lions that he wanted to breed with and um, died. But the, he, um, the post-mortem is indeterminate on that. He's afraid that the animal overheated, but the zoo are denying that. Um, but that's one of the claims as well. And the zookeeper was looking after the sea lions at the time. And Nico is the main reason that this whistleblower has come forward. Um, he was absolutely devastated when um, he came back from his weekend off and uh, Nico was dead and he had to carry his dead body into the van to be taken to UCD for post-mortem and it just left him shattered. And I've spoken to other zookeepers around the whistleblower who witnessed um, the distress that the death of this animal had caused the whistleblower mm. and the distress had caused all of them. Mm. Um, and there's no answers as to how Nico died. So we're looking for the post mortem on that and unfortunately I've been blocked on all my freedom of information requests. It, they're now with the information commissioner. For some reason I can't seem to get <clears throat> the to- post mortems from UCD. They're saying they're contracted to the zoo and it's the zoo's decision but the zoo is blocking them as well. So we need answers. We need specifics. Not just a blanket denial um, with, mm. with all of these. But see, it, we're, we're talking more than 20 animals and we're dead and alive.
4: Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that about the Freedom of Information requests. Uh, that seems uh, peculiar that uh, they're not uh, releasing the documents.
7: Well, the
8: postmortems belong to UCD. Mm. Uh, Well, they don't belong to UCD. They belong to the zoo, but uh, UCD are obviously contracted to carry out the postmortems. Their argument is under Section 34 of the Freedom of Information Act, where they are contracted by the zoo to do this, and it's their job in confidence to do it, and they Mm. can't release it. So they've submitted they can't release it. The zoo have also submitted to the Information Commissioner they can't release it. I'm arguing that the postmortems... But Yeah, uh, because Uh, they're in confidence, and it also says it could damage the reputation of the zoo. Now, as I've argued mm. with the Information Commissioner, that nothing supersedes uh, uh, public interest mm. when it comes to animal welfare. These are vulnerable animals, and we have to be their voice. We have to see these post yeah. because we have to know why they died. So I'm... Yeah, well, I,
4: I can't understand... understand, understand. These I, I, I can't understand the arguments you say that they're uh, putting forward for not releasing uh, the post-mortem results of animals who died in Dublin Zoo. Um, that really well, I've called on the yeah, Information
8: yeah, Commissioner yeah, to, to make a determination to make it, on it. Yeah, and, of course, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a housing inspection and investigation yeah. underway.
4: Mm. Well that's that's going to be an official state investigation because the zoo has vehemently disputed what is being said by the whistleblower and as you said in the article yesterday they say that the whistleblower's allegations are misleading and contain inaccurate clinical assessment but that's going to be tested now by this official investigation which is to be carried out by the Department of Housing.
8: Well, you see, there's concerns about that as well, because the Department of Housing, and that's another thing, I couldn't get to the bottom who, who actually oversees the zoo. We know that they got a two million rescue fund from the OPW, the Office of Public Works, during the pandemic, but they say it's nothing to do with them. The Department of Agriculture have designated animal welfare officers under the Health and Safety Animal Welfare Act. Department of Housing who licensed the zoo don't have a dedicated animal welfare office, officer. So they've sent it on to the um, National Parks and Wildlife Service who don't have a, a dedicated animal welfare officer. So they're basically investigating themselves here, Michael. The whistleblower and the zookeepers are completely rejecting the Department of Housing's inspection because this is not independent. How can it be independent? And the other concern I have is that Dublin Zoo have written to me to say not only did they reject them, they're appointing their own independent anim- animal welfare officer. How is that possible? How can these like, big or- organisations investigate themselves? You need someone from the outside who has no affiliation yeah. to housing, agriculture or any of them. to to investigate the claims of the zookeepers, who also told me, if you look at the previous inspections, that they're all very pristine and everything's above board. But zookeepers have told me that they're never questioned during the inspections and that the inspections are forewarned. So the Department of Housing has already told me that they have to give the zoo. Regarding notification to zoos of inspections, this is from housing, the policy is that four to six weeks' notice are given for an inspection due to a large amount of documentation, access and possible conflicts. Four to six weeks' notice to get your house in order before an inspection. No on-the-spot investigation. Mm. And and so that's the concern. Why is that happening? Um, so the whistleblower is rejecting any Investigation by the Department of Housing, based on the fact that they don't have a dedicated well, welfare officer, and that they're giving the zoo notice that they're going to be investigating them. So how? Like, I mean, how does that work? Yeah. A lot of questions still, Michael. A lot of yeah. questions, and it's going on a long time because, as I said, I've been receiving a lot of legal letters from the zoo's um, solicitors, uh, as I oh, having only just sent in questions. Having only sent in questions, I was getting legal threats. Um, I hadn't published anything at this point. And and also, you know, a blanket denial, but no specifics. And if we're wrong, great. But we need to see the details. And yet I'm getting blanket denials and legal threats and a lot of concerns there
3: uh,
4: I think anybody listening uh, to you speaking about this uh, this morning Alison will know that you're determined to get to the bottom of it and that you're not going to let it go Um, you've obviously done Trojan work uh, in respect of uh, bringing this uh, story published yesterday uh, to the public uh, attention and uh, I'm sure there'll be more in the coming weeks for that matter we'll leave it there for now though and thank you uh, as always for joining us on the programme Alison O'Reilly, journalist who has been investigating The whistleblower claims in Dublin Zoo over the course of uh, the last year.
6: Michael Michael Reed
4: on on LMFM. Uh, A new research uh, project on uh, establishing an observatory on human rights in long term care is to examine and explore the key human rights issues for people who are receiving long term care care and support services. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sarah Lennon, who's Executive Director of Sage Advocacy. Good morning to you, Sarah, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. And uh, I think you want to hear from people who are receiving long-term care and uh, their families uh, uh, for that matter.
2: We we do indeed. In in Sage Advocacy, we're hoping to hear from, we know there's about, at the moment, uh, more than 50,000 people receiving support in their own home. And we know that there's more than 30,000 people Um, who are receiving care in nursing homes and we know there's a great many other people who would want to receive care maybe in the near future so we're really looking to hear from from everybody about what they want that care to look like and where they want it to be and um, how they would like to be treated in that type of care.
4: Okay and when you talk about human rights uh, if you're looking at uh, how we're fulfilling people's human rights uh, I take it you're concerned about abuses?
2: We're concerned about abuses, and we're concerned about um, people being deprived of their liberty, for example. And, and ha- but it's, it's also more fundamental than that. We want to hear what people want in terms of, um, you know, choice around their day, um, who they live with, do they share a room with somebody, for example, and also very basic things which we hear aren't which you can't take for granted, such as what time you get up at and go to bed at. Um, so everything. The whole gamut of, of you know, really um, serious human rights in terms of, as you say, abuse and being safe, but also then down to the basics around just choice and you having a say over how your day is spent.
4: Mm, that sounds peculiar, I think, to most people, uh, because we are talking about adults uh, who uh, aren't able to decide what time to get up or go to bed.
2: Yeah, I mean, we definitely have feedback from, from, from a lot of residential homes, for example, and, and sometimes in home care, if you're depending on someone to arrive, to support you to get out of bed in the morning, for example, that that you're very tied to what's available, what's provided to you. So um, I think what we want to hear from people is, well, you know, what way do you want to direct your care? A lot of people tell us they're, they're very happy with the care they're getting as well. That's an important thing to say. But I suppose what we really want to do is take an opportunity that's coming up, hopefully by the end of this year, and the government are establishing a commission on care, which is going to look at everything, how care is being delivered, how it will be delivered in the future, and very importantly, how it's going to be funded. Mm. Because as we know, it's getting older. Um, and if we live long enough, each of us, there's an element of, of care and support in our, all of our futures.
4: Mm. I think most people will tell you um, that they hope they never go into a home or they don't want someone belonging to them to go into a home. Uh, and it can be a very difficult situation, but quite often uh, there's uh, no alternative uh, to what we understand uh, as nursing home care now.
8: Exactly.
2: And, and I think there'll always be an element of nursing home care. And um, I think what we we know in stage advocacy from our work and from research we've done in the past is that people can end up in nursing home care, as you say, because the alternatives aren't there. And, and possibly prematurely, they could have stayed at home for longer. And, and most people, as you say, you know, they like their own home. They like where they live. Um, They like their own space, their neighbours, their community and they want to stay there for as long as possible. Um, And part of really what we're hoping this commission will do is make sure that people have a right to home care because at the moment there's a right to nursing home care Mm. but that right to home care is not in place yet.
4: And possibly a different model of nursing home care uh, where instead of having these big institutions uh, with lots of residents that people would live in the community and, and still receive the same kind of care.
2: Exactly and an important part of staying at home can be respite care where you go for occasional residential care and um, particularly if you're receiving care from family members or informal care at home that people would get a break um, for a number of weeks per year and that can be a really important part of keeping people home as well because you know the carers, the family don't get burnt out supporting the person who's living at home as well so I think all of those things um, need to be really examined and what SAGE wants to hear is directly from People who are currently receiving care who may have been in care before because we're also talking about people with disability who have moved from the big institutions into the community as well and um, and then obviously the perspectives of family members as well what would what would make it work better really and um, and obviously we're looking at it through to human rights but, but that's what it boils down to what would work better for you what would give you more choice What would give you a bigger say on how care is delivered for you
4: okay do they do it differently elsewhere in other countries uh, are there different models of care that can be looked at
2: There are. There are. There there are a great many different uh, number of models. And again, part of what we're researching is what works well in other countries that are very similar to to ours. We know there's models in Scandinavia that work well. And we also know that one of the arguments that's often put forward is that you know, home care can cost more. Well, it actually, in some cases, doesn't cost more if it's run well, um, and it's you know based on empowering the person to support themselves as much as possible. We know that nursing home care can get very expensive for the person, but also for the state as well. So, mm. keeping people at home can actually, um, and not everything boils down to money, but unfortunately, it is a very important element of of what we're talking about planning for.
4: Okay, um, tell me uh, about what's uh, envisaged with the observatory.
2: So what we're hoping to put in place is an observatory which would sit for a number of years. So we're working towards this commission in the autumn or towards the end of the year that the government has promised us. But also, this observatory would sit over a number of years and would essentially keep an eye on how Ireland is doing in terms of long-term care. And um, there's all sorts of different things out there in terms of, you know, responsibilities to the United Nations, etc., and also in terms of, of our own, uh, you know, regulator in HICWA, for for example. Mm. So what we're hoping to do is get a group of people, including people with lived experience of care, who would I suppose track Ireland's progress in terms of what we say we're trying to deliver um, and would regularly then engage with the government to say this needs improvement or you're doing well in this respect. So it Mm -hmm. would be a long-term project over a
4: number of years. Okay, so it's obviously very different from HICWA which would police the rules, the regulations and to make sure that Nursing homes, for example, are in line with the regulations. But this observatory, then, what would that do? Would that look at if the regulations are appropriate, or if uh, they should be changed in some way?
1: Exactly,
2: we would definitely have recommendations. I imagine for HICWA over time, and um, and obviously we wouldn't have, um, you know, we we wouldn't have uh, sort of the enforcement mechanisms that HICWA have, and um, we would be just, I suppose, a research and observatory, a watchdog. Um, making sure that, as you say, any recommendations that need to be made to anybody, including HICWA, including the departments, including the HSE, for example, that we would make them in the appropriate way. Um, and I think, again, as I say, importantly, would have that lived experience at the very heart of it, which um, is, is relatively unique um, for Ireland in terms of this type of project.
4: OK. And what about the cost of care? Would that feed into the thinking of this uh, observatory?
2: has to. I think what we would look to do is, I suppose, point to other countries with similar populations to ours, with similar um, demographics to ours, people ageing at the same rate, um, and, and, and sort of demonstrate how they're doing it. But it's an important thing for the Commission on Care um, to actually grasp that nettle in particular, because what we need is um, not just the Department of Health. We need the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and Finance all talking to each other about this year's budget, but also the next four, five, six years' budgets. We know there's plenty of talk around pensions and can we afford them. We have to have the same conversation around care. Because if we don't, what's already a crisis for a lot of people on the ground, particularly around home care. Um, it's only going to get worse. And, you know, we know what way the country is going in terms of ageing. It's very, very clear. Um, And if we don't put in place right now the financial plan for the next 5, 10, 50 and 20 years, um, we're facing an enormous crisis down the road in terms of care.
4: Well, it seems very unfair, I think, to a lot of people because there's kind of a a lottery element to it uh, and who knows who will end up needing care, whether that's uh, in a home or home care, as the case may be, and that can be a financial burden and you're lucky or unlucky, as the case may be, if I can put it that way, Sarah, uh, as to whether you end up needing that care and the cost involved with it and you could say that if you end up with some disease like uh, cancer Mm -hmm. or heart disease uh, well then of course uh, the public health service looks after that uh, and this is similar but at the same time it is very costly because a lot of the care that we're talking about is uh, high dependency care uh, and you're also then talking about this aging population more and more people needing care as time goes on.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, as I say, it could be ahead of any one of us. Um, Some of us, be fortunate, we will have family who can maybe take care of us. There's up to half a million um, home carers in Ireland at present. But a lot of home carers will will tell you they don't feel particularly valued and that it's an assumption that we make that people will look after people as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think it has to come as part of an overall kind of reform um, package. Um, but again, that's going to be an important piece of work for for the Commission on Care. I wouldn't want to preempt what it finds, but it is crucial that it doesn't doesn't just come out with another policy document which tells us what we already know—that most people want to live at home for as long as they can—that we need to put in the support, but so it actually grasps that nettle and is realistic with us all about what it's going to cost for us to to actually put in place what's appropriate for our future population.
4: Okay, Sarah, we'll leave it there. People can contact you uh, in uh, SAGE uh, if uh, they want to participate in this and to make their views known now.
8: Yeah, we'd be really keen if you visit
2: our website, sageadvocacy.ie. We have a questionnaire. We're going to be holding focus groups. And if people need support to fill out a questionnaire, they can get in touch with our project coordinator. And all the information is on our website, uh, sageadvocacy.ie.
4: Very good. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Sarah Lennon is Executive uh, Director of Sage Advocacy. Now, let me just uh, bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Somebody uh, in touch with us telling us that they got a, a text message from on post. Or they were wondering if it was from on post. Your package has a 190 unpaid fee to pay, visit a website. Uh, if it is not paid, the package will be returned to the sender uh, and uh, they may send it back uh, because they'll not be hearing from me, says our, our caller. <laughs> Just to warn others, though, uh, because this, as our caller is pointing out, is quite rightly a scam. Uh, do not uh, respond to those messages. God knows uh, what will end up uh, happening. Uh, to your phone or your bank account or whatever Um, the, the those messages are going around a lot from on post or purporting to be from on post they're not from on post uh, Dave Finnegan in Dublin David Finnegan says Micheál Martin is a very good and honest leader of the Fianna Fáil party top man uh, going back to our conversation with uh, the local councillors about uh, the state of uh, the party uh, somebody in touch uh, saying what about Fianna Fáil helping working families etc we have the worst housing issue in In uh, the history of the state, we also have the highest interest rates in the EU and the banks wait until the government go on leave to announce a run of interest hikes with fuel reaching record prices, inflation rising rapidly. And we are only months away from the colder weather coming in when paying for fuel will become a huge issue. So what exactly? are these people doing for the working class? Paddy says the problem uh, Michal, Martin and his party have is that our people have a longer memory than they might wish them to have. Changing the driver of the bus won't char- change the destination. Margaret says the reason so many people are in debt is because of plastic cards. When you, cash, when you use cash, you know exactly how much you have to spend. With plastic, it's so easy to spend what you don't have and then you end up in debt. Maybe that's what the banks want so they can charge interest on that debt. Covid kept a lot of people out of the banks for two years and the banks are still open thanks to a huge bailout that came from the taxpayer. And Margaret says they need to remember that. Thank you, Margaret. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far
6: today. Michael
4: Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now it's estimated that around 700 farm vehicle and machinery accidents take place on an annual basis. Uh, the government is uh, to invest 1.25 million euro in 18 simulators, uh, which will be used in agricultural colleges uh, across uh, the coming year. It's uh, unique uh type of uh, approach. I think we'll be hearing about that now with Minister Martin Hayden, who's Minister of State at uh, the Department of Agriculture, Food, and the Marine. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning. Uh, before you talk to us uh, about that safety initiative, uh, can I ask you about uh, the letter from uh, the Finnegale uh, TDs and uh, senators uh, in relation to the carbon a- emissions? Uh, what do you make of that? Do you support their view?
9: Look, I, uh, good morning, Michael, and, and good morning to your listeners also. Um, look, I understand, I'm not surprised by um, the view articulated by a number of my Fine Gael colleagues. Um, we in Fine Gael, obviously, have our roots very much in rural Ireland, and um, we would have had robust debates in our parliamentary party, including with my colleagues in, in Mead and Loud as well, um, around you know having a sensible approach to um, all of the challenges we face in, in terms of whether it's cost of living, whether it's the environment, um, and climate action that we have ambition and um, we have a very significant ambition as a government and as a political party, but also that we are very cognizant of decisions we make and the impact they'll have on um, the economic sustainability as well. And like, that's very much in keeping with government approach because you know our, in the Department of Agriculture our Food Vision 2030 strategy our 10 year strategy talks about uh, the three pillars of sustainability um, climate sustainability environmental sustainability obviously being crucial but also equally as important is the economic sustainability of our farmers and the socially, social sustainability of the rural communities in mm. which they live so I, I think you know reading through it that's what, where my colleagues are coming yeah. from in terms of making sure the decisions we make um, the, you know uh, a risk of, of
4: tarnishing the, the- country's reputation as one of the world's most sustainable producers of quality food you you'd support that view minister would you
9: no i i, I do think mm. it's reflective in government policy michael in terms of you know when when they're t- talking about that like we are talking about agriculture um setting mm. very ambitious targets for agriculture whether it's twenty two percent or higher um you know <laughs> like even you, did, you didn't
4: price. mention thirty percent twenty two percent or higher should it be twenty two percent
9: no, i'm, I'm Actually, purposely doing that, Michael, yeah. because you know there's a narrative out there that if, if agriculture got a 22%, percent let say, or a lower range figure, that that would somehow would be a free pass for agriculture. 22% alone, and this is the point I was going to make: it, it that's a five megaton reduction on our 2018 figures. A very ambitious target for agriculture to meet. And if we're higher than 22%, obviously, then that's more ambitious again. But there's been some commentary, and I think this is where my colleagues in Fine Gael are coming from regarding um, you know the, the, the fact that agriculture has a lower range than other areas like uh, energy. Um, like built environment and all the others, but that's for a very good reason because we stitched into the programme for government uh, from the start, um, special consideration to the role that agriculture and food production plays in our rural economy. So if you take, um, agriculture is worth about 7% of our of our total GDP, um, but if you go into rural communities in, yeah. um, in, in, in Mead and Loud and all over yeah. the country, yeah. uh, that's worth, you can double that to about 14 or 15% of what it's worth to the local economy. So it's about making the decisions that absolutely deliver for the climate, uh, the produce the food we'll produce more sustainably mm. into the future um, but that is cognizant that an awful lot of livelihoods not just farm families but the communities in which they live depend on, on that um, economic activity as well.
4: Okay and maybe we could talk about workplace safety for those people because another interesting statistic is uh, that six percent of uh, the working population apparently is employed in agriculture but 42 percent of fatal workplace incidents that's between 2011 and 2020 were uh, in agriculture. Uh, this uh, uh, project, uh, <coughs> this funding that uh, you've given to, to Chagas uh, will deliver these 18 machines, simulators. Um, they'll be in the agricultural colleges and hopefully will uh, help people to understand better the risks that are, are involved in working on machinery and tractors and so on.
9: Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose if I can say from the outset that, um, you know, in my approach to farm safety, I'm the first Minister of State we have been given special dedicated responsibility for farm safety, and I've tried to bring together a number of different actors from the farm organisations to community groups to working with the HSA and my colleague Minister Damien English, um, who is responsibility for the Health and Safety Authority, who is the statutory authority for safety in the workplace. Um, There's no one simple solution to the huge challenge we have around farm safety. You know, the the farm is the most dangerous workplace in all of Ireland by some distance. Um, We have made some progress in terms of of numbers in in recent uh, years, but I'm, I'm even slow to say that because Ultimately, when you're talking about statistics, it masks the reality of these are people's lives. You know, Mm. on average, 20 people have lost their lives on Irish farms every year back over the last decade. Last year, that was reduced to 10. um, And and so far this year, we're at six. But these are six communities and six families that will never get over this uh, this loss. So it's trying to address all the different facets of risk um, and change the culture in our approach to agriculture. But one area that I know is of a lot of concern, not just the farmers, and farm families, but also to road users, is you know, young farmers starting out driving heavy machinery. Um, and you know, modern machinery now is a lot more powerful and it can go very fast and it can carry very big weights behind you. Mm. So, what I use in my farm budget, uh, the majority of my farm safety budget for this year, is to purchase these simulators and place one work in, in conjunction with Chagas in every agricultural and horticultural college in the country. And that anybody, not just those who do um, the the years green cert, but anybody that goes in and out of those colleges, a lot of these colleges would partner with local ITs and um, institutes of technology and universities and all the rest. Where wh- any students that go in there will have the opportunity to drive these simulators. They're very Impressive in terms of the real life impact they give you hmm. of driving machi- different types of machinery from tractors with different trailers and balers behind you to combines um, and and, like, and to do you it under
4: supervision, roadster. I suppose uh, is the Absolutely. key to this. So See, that, but
9: it's, it's a very safe environment because hmm. you know I, I had a neighbor of mine who was 18 up on one of these not too long ago and. He went to turn his tractor and very long trailer across the road and it hit a car, but Mm. that was in a virtual setting. It was a big wake-up call for him. Um, But, you know, he misjudged the timing of it. And he's not somebody who's out out on the road yet, but that experience was was good for him to understand the size and scale of these. So I think in terms of simulation, uh, it's using modern technology to reach um, a a certain cohort of of young farmers as they're being trained in all of the skills in farming um, and to let them learn that in a safe environment.
4: Okay, and uh, should that level of training be uh, prerequisite for anybody who's going to drive uh, these machines?
9: Yeah, look, to to start with, you know, uh, um, there are different levels there of entry in in terms of when when young uh, farmers are starting out, but when, when we look at all of the challenges and the hazards there, most of the hazards are happening within the family farm home, and a lot of a lot of our challenges around farm safety is the complacency that we have in that space so mm. we we're not we're not seeing very big numbers or significant statistics in in the area okay. um, of, of road fatalities. It's much more so around the farm and really the issue there when I talked about culture change mm. is the fact that we're so familiar with our farm settings and um, the farm is a pretty unique workplace in terms of the fact that the family home tends to be in the middle of it and that brings big hazards with young children uh, as well as with the older generation who are all involved in the farming enterprise okay. so it's about us changing our culture and being more aware to the risks and the hazards that are around us and we're just coming out of Farm Safety Week now where we've been driving home that message um, about identifying hazards mm. and not putting um, you know identifying the risks and um, where you spot them make that change. Whether it's a cracked manhole cover or a dodgy PPO shaft, make that change. Don't put it off.
4: All right, Minister, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That's uh, Martin Hayden, Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning.
3: Bye-bye. The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie